Our Father, thank you for all that we have heard thus far in this time of worship. Through testimony, through song. And now, Lord, through your word. We pray that you will give us ears to hear and spiritual eyes to see your truth and hearts, O Lord, that are believing you, taking you at your word, trusting you, and knowing you. Help me as the one bringing this message to speak your word and to communicate, Lord, what you have for each of us. May we all receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our study of 1 Peter continues uh, this morning as we pick up at chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. <clears throat> And here at this uh, verse, verse 13, uh, Peter transitions his reader's focus from the subject of submission in life as followers of Christ to the topic of suffering, suffering for Christ. Specifically, uh, he's addressing suffering which believers face because they follow Christ, because they are trusting Him. Believers in Jesus seek to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord and at times they uh, suffer for it. I'll have to say at the outset as I think about that suffering for Christ for doing what is right um, at least for myself, uh, uh, and maybe it's true for all of us that we really don't know what it means to suffer for Jesus' sake. Now while Peter's addressing suffering that comes from being a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit's instruction through him can be applied to suffering in the broader context of affliction and hardships that are experienced by all humanity. Keep in mind as we explore this section which uh, begins here at chapter 3 and verse 13 and continues through chapter 4 and verse 6 that uh, Peter's not going to answer every question you and I might have related to the why there is suffering in this world or in particular, why Christians suffer. The greater context of the Bible as a whole gives us further insights and even greater comfort. But I've come to realize, and maybe you have already, that uh, even then, not every question that you and I might have uh, is fully answered to our satisfaction. When we face suffering in this present world, this is where we are called to trust God and to walk by faith and not by sight. I, I 
trust that when we're in this section of Peter's letter that deals specifically with suffering, uh, I hope to bring some other uh, scripture portions along with other insights that believers have gained in their experience who've walked the veil of tears as it has been called. One of the things that you have probably realized and it's certainly a, an absolute truth that suffering is universal. It is part of the human experience. Everyone is touched by suffering in some form or another. And it's interesting to try and respond to suffering. And some of the ways that that has happened is that when suffering comes to us, when trials and tribulations become our experience, even among believers, some question the goodness of God and His character. Some of the objections to God revealed in Scripture and our understanding of things when it, as it relates to suffering it, it is, is as follows. Some might say he allows suffering uh, and either God is all good yet powerless, which means that he's but a bystander, or that he's all powerful but he's not all good believing that he is the inflictor of all pain and trial and tribulation. Or someone might come to the conclusion that God is neither all good nor all powerful and thus he's really no God at all. And like us, he's surprised when suffering enters our experience. However, all of those are inaccurate and, and inadequate. It doesn't help, uh, in especially our present day, with social media and our access to so many things that there is a lot of false teaching of what has been sometimes dubbed the prosperity gospel that doesn't help when Christians face suffering of various kinds. In fact, sometimes the teaching of certain individuals causes misunderstanding, bewilderment, and even a loss of faith in God. Just this past week, I wasn't looking for this, but I came across uh, uh, a documentary not uh, produced by Christians, but it uh, in that documentary mentions a family that came to the United States from India. They became believers in Jesus Christ. The son, through a series of, of situations, became severely paralyzed. And this Christian family went to a particular well-known uh, ministry and was told that their son would be healed if they made a contribution. This family ended up taking a loan 
just so that they can give. And as time passed, the son died. The interviewer, speaking with this husband and wife in their grief, asked them what they thought of the promise made to them by the particular teacher. They were reluctant to lay any blame at his feet. But it was interesting when the interviewer asked them about their view of God, the type of response that was given, which was very little, seemed to imply that God was to blame in this context. You know, some people when facing suffering draw wrong conclusions even on their own, not because of false teaching or because of their wrong understanding of who God is. But sometimes even we as Christians can have a mistaken notion that if I do the right thing, if I'm good, if I'm faithful and in obeying God, I will never face suffering. Kind of reminds me of uh, the TV show years ago, Happy Days. <laughs> How many of you remember that? Some of you might. There was one in which uh, Arthur Fonzarelli, the Fonz, he, you know, he, uh, he had an accident. Somebody hit him in the head with a tray and he lost his sight as a result of that. It was an interesting um, storyline because it wasn't your typical jokes and things like that. It was more of a serious kind of thing because he wrestled with why he would go blind. And I can remember in particular, in fact, I looked this up just to be sure that I was accurate and with the way I was remembering this. There's, a, there's one scene where he's alone and he's kind of talking to God and he says to him, but I thought I was your favorite. And that was kind of his response to, like, why me? Why would you allow me to suffer? Maybe, maybe that's the lot of other people. And not, obviously I'm reading more into his statement there than the show may have been trying to communicate. But, you know, you and I can have that kind of response to, to suffering in this present world. I, I don't know that we highlight or even memorize or underline and have uh, it posted on our refrigerators these words of Jesus from John 16:33. In this world you will have trouble. That's stated almost as a matter of fact. Some have even said as a promise. In this world you're going to have tribulation. You know, but it's good that he didn't end there. He says, but take courage, take heart. I've overcome the world. <laughs> you know, and it's in Christ that you and I have a hope and a future and somewhat of an understanding when suffering comes our way. And Peter is trying to bring his audience, his readers who were starting to face persecution and difficulties and trials because of the very fact that they followed Christ. That was the only motivation behind their, their difficulty. And he writes these words, Who is 
going to harm you if you are eager to do good. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I think there's three main observations about suffering for Christ that we find in this context. And the principles obviously can, uh, can be applied in the broader context of suffering in general that you and I face. You'll notice with me that in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3, the first thing Peter gives is somewhat of a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question, but it's about very real suffering. And he says, who is going to harm you if... You are eager to do good if you prove zealous for doing good. Um, Peter, as you know in this letter, has already instructed believers to do good. In chapter 1 and verse 14, part of that being good before the Lord and others is being a holy person set apart to God. It's also seen in chapter 1 and verse 22 of loving each other fervently. And then in chapter 2 and verses 12 and 15... He specifically says, do good. And this becomes a testimony to the saving grace of God. And in chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, believers, you are to be a blessing in the lives of others. These are all ways that you and I uh, do good. I think that Peter is repeating in part the words of Jesus who in Luke chapter 6 and verse 32 said these words, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Verse 34, If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. And he's setting up here Jesus in this context of Luke chapter 6, a contrast. You know, there are certain things that, that even the unbelieving world will do that might be considered noble and even noteworthy and, and good, if you would. But notice what he says you and I are to do because we are Christ's followers, because we know Him, because we have a new nature, because we have the Spirit of God indwelling and empowering us. He says, verse 35, but love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be called sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. In fact, he says, be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. So we're called to, to live that way in this present fallen world as Christ followers doing good. 
But what happens if, if we suffer for that? That it's not well received, that it's not looked upon with favor, but in fact becomes the catalyst for opposition or trouble or tribulation or persecution or suffering. Well, he says in verse 14, if you turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And, and when he phrases it that way at the beginning of verse 14, he's saying that suffering is a possibility, but it's not always a certainty. Living for the sake of righteousness does not inevitably result in being afflicted or persecuted by others. Though it can. And in his context, it was happening. And the sobering thing in our 21st century today is that we're moving in the direction that Peter's readers were experiencing of the believer in Jesus Christ, the Christ follower, the one who wants to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord in the context of just daily living has now become the target. And it's very possible that you and I could face not only tri trials and tribulations for being Christians in this country, but out-and-out -out persecution. You'll recall that uh, at one point... Uh, when the gospel was first going out from Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, which was early on in church history, it says that the Christians enjoyed favor from all the people. They observed all the things that they were doing, the love and the care they had towards one another, and it looked good. But you continue to read on in the book of Acts and there was a man by the name of Stephen whom God empowered with wisdom and the Holy Spirit and the ability to communicate the gospel in a way that was pointed and direct. And in chapter 7 you have him confronting through the gospel the unrighteousness that was in the religious leaders of the day. And you see, the gospel is not only the doing of good in following Christ and His example in that way. The gospel is also proclaiming the unrighteousness of fallen man and a need for a Savior. And the gospel calls us not only to do good in the name of Jesus, but also to proclaim truth. And Stephen confronted the unrighteousness uh, in the leadership and people of that day, and as a result, he was stoned. And did you note that in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, that became the catalyst at that moment? It says that a great persecution broke out against the Christians, and as a result, they were scattered. See, righteousness that Peter is speaking about here and suffering for it, righteousness can be defined as doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And that means that righteousness confronts sin. It doesn't redefine it. It doesn't try to allow the culture of the day to, to say that, well, this was once considered wrong, 
But now, in our enlightened day, it's okay. The Bible hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. Human nature hasn't changed. The, the call to repent hasn't changed in the gospel when it's truly given. It confronts sin. And you see, the unbelieving world, the unbeliever doesn't want to be confronted with the fact that they're sinners. We don't like to be, as believing people, confronted with the fact that we're sinners. But there's a, the only difference is we're sinners saved by grace. But see, sometimes I can be at a place where, well, that's not me out there. But you know what? I still have the same fallen nature that I need to reckon dead to sin because that's me apart from Christ. And see, the gospel confronts sin, but the gospel also stands for truth. It doesn't compromise. It doesn't allow the, the pressure of the culture or the day or the moment or the argument to, to sort of capitulate and to give in. It stands for the truth. Righteousness does good. And in doing that, you're actually reflecting our Lord who only did good. And what did He do? He went out and He healed people. He cast out demons. He fed 5,000. He did all those things that were indicators of God's desire to want to bless and help people in their brokenness and in their condition. But human nature being what it is, when they were confronted with the fact that there needs to be a transformation of the heart and a humbling and a submission to Christ as Lord, it's rejected. It's we will not have this man to reign over us. You know, interestingly, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, and you know these words, they're very familiar to all of us. Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed if for the sake of Christ and for the sake of doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord, you come under suspicion, under turmoil, under persecution. Jesus says you're blessed. Blessed are you, he says, when people insult you. Do you think that Christians are insulted in our country today? Blessed are you when you're persecuted and, and falsely, all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of evil are set against you because of me. See, we can't allow the world's perception of the church or the gospel to be the reality of what it means to be a Christ follower. Because the unbeliever is not going to, to applaud the gospel they're going to, in fact, reject it. And notice this. He again says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know what? You're in good company, saints. When for the sake of Christ and for doing what is right, you are treated as an evildoer and, and sort of the, 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 the narrative is turned upside down and on its head that you're the problem. You're the one doing wrong when only you are doing right in the eyes of the Lord. 
So how do we respond? Here's the second observation. How do we respond properly? Well, if you go back to chapter 3 and the second half of verse 14, 14b, Peter says this, Don't fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. So the first thing that he says here is, Don't fear their fear. Better this could be understood is, Don't have fear of them. You'll say, that's, that's easy to say, Peter. Just don't be afraid. Go back to Matthew chapter 10 with me for a moment. Again, the words of Jesus and hear what he says concerning these things. Notice this. Matthew chapter 10 verse 24. A, a student, a disciple, is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. And notice what Jesus says. This is a command of Jesus. So don't be afraid of them. In fact, the second thing that he says is don't be frightened, don't be troubled, if you go back to 1 Peter 3.14. How many times in the scripture does God tell his people, do not be afraid? Now, someone has said that there's, that appears 365 times in the Bible. That may be true. I haven't found 365, by the way. It's in there multiple times, but not that many, at least as far as I can tell. You can help me and discover all three of those, all 365 of those, if they're truly there. The point is this. He repeatedly says to his people, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of them and don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. And, and someone said this, and, and, and uh, I, I share this quote, God never asks any man or any woman under any circumstance to be or to do anything for him without at that very moment placing at his disposal ample and adequate provision to be and to do that very thing. In other words, God's commands are His enablements. So when He says to you and me, facing suffering for Jesus' sake, or maybe facing suffering of any kind, don't be afraid and don't be troubled, He gives us the ability to say, I'm not afraid. I'm not going to be troubled by this. It's found in God Himself, not in us. Because the natural response to difficulty, to trial, to trouble, to persecution, to tribulation, to suffering is to fear. But God says, don't fear. So what does he say next to do? Well, don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled. But verse 15, he says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Sanctify Christ in your hearts. In other words, at the very core of your being, in your very heart of hearts, you have come to a settled place by faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means that He is the sovereign over all things. I need not be afraid because Christ 
God is greater. God is sovereign. And with Christ in my life and in my heart, Psalm 46 and verse 1 is a reality. God is my refuge and my strength of very present help in trouble. He's there. So therefore, Christ being Lord of my heart and Lord of my life, I say, I stand firm. Athanasius of Alexandria was credited with affirming the deity of Jesus Christ in his day. And there were those that were, that were uh, in the midst of, of, the, of, the, of the conversations and even the debates as to whether or not Jesus was really God. Athanasius stood firm for the truth of the Scripture. And it's been said that someone said once to Athanasius, Athanasius, don't you know that the world stands against you with this? And Athanasius' response was this, if the world is against the truth, then I stand against the world. I stand against the world if need be. Why? Because Christ is my Lord. And I know Him to be so in my very heart. It's, he's set apart in my heart as Lord. He's Lord over all. <laughs> And one day, by the grace of God and the power of God, every knee is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Every tongue is con going to confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believer and unbeliever alike. And that is not universalism. That is just a declaration of truth. God will have the last word. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does he say here? With Christ being in your heart and being your Lord, next thing he says, verse 15, is be prepared. <laughs> Isn't that a motto of, of some group? Boy Scouts, I knew that there was, yeah. Be prepared. But you know, as Christians, you and I need to be prepared. And what does he say? Always be prepared to give to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Are you prepared to give an answer for why you have hope? Maybe I should back up the, the question here first and say, do you have hope as a believer in Jesus Christ? You should. He said in chapter 3 and verse 1 when he opened this letter that Jesus Christ having been raised from the dead is our living hope as Christ followers. Having that hope, you're able to look at the present circumstances, even the difficulties that you are presently facing and realize there's something far better and far greater that is yet to come. That is yet to come. So he says, be prepared. That requires that you and I study. That you and I know what the Word of God actually says. And I know that I'm, the old, old phrase, I'm preaching to the choir here. But if statistics are accurate with churches that are surveyed in America, there's a lot of people who don't know what this book really says. So how are you going to answer the critic, the person that comes against the gospel and the church and the reality of Jesus Christ if you can't answer them by what the Word of God actually says? 
You may not be able to quote chapter and verse, but my friends, the more that you're in this book, the more it becomes part of who you are. And then the Holy Spirit has something to work with when you have the word in your, your mind to bring it to your remembrance. Jesus even said, uh, you know, don't worry about all the time of, of having every answer to every argument. Because it's going to be given you in that very moment through the work of the Holy Spirit within you. But you have to do your part. You have to be prepared. And secondly, he says to make a defense. It's interesting the word he uses there from the Greek is apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. It means to give an answer. And it means to answer the objections, but also to answer the questions that others have. And I think that it's a sad thing if the Christian isn't able to defend the gospel from the Word of God and from their own life. He says, be prepared and make a defense. And to give a reason for the hope that you have within you. Hope, according to Scripture, means a certainty and a confident expectation of good things to come, promised and secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's biblical hope. But you know what? When you respond, when I respond, Peter says the next thing you do is you do this with gentleness and with respect. Oh my, if there was ever a day where that is sorely lacking in our world, it's now. Peter says when you respond to someone who, who genuinely has a question or even is antagonistic to you, you respond with gentleness and with respect. Not with angry, loud, in-your-face kind of responses. Typing in all capitals. That'll make my point. I, I think that Peter is trying to say here is that you should be able to, under the power of the Holy Spirit, to have a conversation with individuals who are contrary to you. They could be ranting and raving. They can be a lunatic and in your face. And you respond with calmness that comes from the Holy Spirit and peace that He gives. I think I've shared this uh, in, in Sunday school, my class a couple weeks ago. Abe Sandler Jr., who's a pastor of a Messianic congregation back in Pennsylvania, often would take trips to New York City and uh, hand out tracts on, on the street and wears a big t-shirt that says, Jews for, Jews for Jesus or Jesus loves you with a big uh, star of David and a cross in it. And he said there was one time there was an old Jewish gentleman that came up to him and, and, and was angry and wagging his finger in his face. And he says, you shouldn't be wearing that. You shouldn't be wearing that. You shouldn't be saying those things. And Abe's response to him with gentleness and with respect was, why are you so angry? And he did it in a soft and whispering voice. And it disarmed the man be able to have a conversation about the reality of the Messiah Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 reminds you and me that we are to speak the truth and do so in love. 
That's part of how we respond to the suffering that may come our way because we follow Christ. And notice he says lastly in verse uh, 16, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Have a good conscience before God that you in fact are doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Not what you might think is the right thing, but you in fact are doing the right thing that God commands you and I to do from His Word. And you have a good conscience. You're able to say, even though they're coming against me and all I've done is good, I have a clear conscience before God that I've done the right thing before Him. So that when the accusation comes, there is no proof or validity to the charges, the slander, the malicious talk that comes against the Christian. There's no evidence of that. And when they, the accusers, learn the truth that they've seen in you, because you're living by the truth, you're living out the truth, they're ashamed of their slander. But you notice this? He doesn't say, you shame them. Did you catch that? They will be ashamed. And how is that going to come about? Let me remind you. That is a work that God will bring to pass. God will, will make it clear that they're coming against you for doing good in the name of Jesus is the wrong thing. In fact, Romans chapter 12 puts it this way for us. Romans chapter 12 don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, See, this goes counter to culture. This goes counter to, to normal ways people think or even the human nature that we have. This goes counter to it. Notice this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. See, do good. Respond not in kind to anger and angst and accusation, but do good. And notice this. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's a, it's a picture that, that Paul uses here. And it's, like, it's almost like dumping the, the, the ashes from, your, from your, your grill, from your charcoal, and dumping it on someone's head. They can't stand it. It's like, I, I keep coming against you and, and doing all these bad things to you, and you keep responding just by loving me and doing good. Ah! <laughs> making my head burn. Don't overcome, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Have a good conscience, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you've done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You know what He's asked you to do. You've followed through in faith. The, the response of that was not a good response. In fact, it's negative against you, but you're still going to follow Him. And the last thing that he says here is the third observation and it's this final verse, verse 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And if I could just summarize this for you, 
It's this. Peter is saying, trust in God and in His will. God who is always good. God who has your best interest in His heart. Trust Him. Trust in His will. He has a purpose and a plan. You say, I don't understand that. I don't know why I'm suffering. I don't know why I've gone through this. He has a purpose and a plan. We heard that even by our testimonies this morning. Trust Him. You say, I don't understand. He didn't ask you to understand. Trust me, He says. Can you trust Him? In other words, if this was the Lord speaking to you, He might ask you the question and me the question, do you trust me? Do you trust me? You, you may have questions about suffering. You're not unique. How do, I, how do I know that? Because here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Do you think that, that maybe there was some persecution and suffering going on in the heart of the psalmist when he penned those words four times over saying, How long, O oh Lord, am I going to be under this? And he calls out to God, verse 3, Look on me and answer, O oh Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I've overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. But, but, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. I would encourage you as this message concludes and a special song follows, listen to this following song and reflect on this message that we've shared together to this morning.